you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Have you ever wanted to get involved in real estate investing? Well, if you haven't, you should. On episode 50 of Queer Money, we talked with Todd Trestador, who introduced us to a new strategy or a new way of preparing for retirement, one that requires investing in real estate. Well, David and I don't know enough about investing in real estate that we can share that with you, so we thought we would invite one of our good friends, Mindy Jensen, who has made a ton of money investing in real estate herself, as well as with her husband, and she also works for Bigger Pockets, which is both a podcast as well as a website that focuses on real estate investing and helping people with real estate investing. So, without further ado, we're going to introduce to you Mindy Jensen. Before we do, however, we want to thank Mass Mutual for sponsoring our podcast and for supporting the queer community. Mass Mutual is supporting us, so please support Mass Mutual. Here we go. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is queer money. Welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. We're doing a sort of a follow-up today. Episode 50 of Queer Money, we interviewed Todd Tresseter of The Financial Mentor, and he talked a little bit about the need for all people, especially LGBT people, to think a little about retirement a little bit differently and not focus so much on retirement savings accounts, but to also to consider a cash flow strategy, similar to Robert Kiyosaki's definition of wealth being that your investments can subsidize your lifestyle. So one of the components of Todd's strategy was for people who want to adopt this strategy to incorporate real estate investing into their portfolio. And we've received since that episode, both direct messages as well as through our Queer Money Facebook group, we've received several questions about how to do such a thing. And so we have a good friend um, who we've known for quite a while who is an expert in real estate investing and works for an amazing website who specializes in real estate investing. So we thought we'd invite her to our show. Welcome, Mindy Jensen. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Mindy is a fellow Coloradan. She is one half of 1500 Days to Freedom. She is Mrs. 1500, if you want to check out her website. She is also apparently Mrs. CNBC because she is on the cover of CNBC, <laughs> homepage of CNBC every other day. I see her more than I see anybody else on CNBC, even Donald Trump. <laughs> um, but, He's there every day. <laughs> uh, but Mindy also works for the real estate investing site called Bigger Pockets that many of our followers are familiar with. We're excited to have Mindy to share her knowledge on real estate investing. I want to say thank you for having me, guys. I love talking about real estate, and I would love to kind of open up this world to your listeners because there is a boatload of money to be made in real estate investing if you do it right. Yeah, it sounds like there's a great opportunity. David and I aren't familiar with real estate investing. We have our own condo. I think we have, what, eight more years left of payments to go, um, but we're certainly not real estate investors. So how would somebody get started? What is your advice when somebody to start looking for information or, or getting started with real estate investing? Actually, Buy a house. <laughs> Buy a house. <laughs> there you go. The We're end. halfway there. Um, <laughs> no. To get started in real estate investing, you have to know or figure out what kind of investing you want to do. It isn't just, I'm a landlord. It isn't just, I'm a fix and flipper. There's a lot of different ways to invest in real estate. And there's a lot of niches inside of each one of those methods that you can really exploit. I mean, you can go, what is the saying? An inch wide and a mile deep. Right. You can go an inch wide and a mile deep in one little teeny tiny part of real estate investing and make so much money you can't even count it all. Oh, I <laughs> nice. love that story. Yeah. So yeah. Be before we go further, Mindy, why don't you tell us about why you're such an expert in this? Because I think that people want to know what your backstory is and why it is that Mindy has so, she's this experience. <laughs> <laughs> I bought a house once, so I totally know. <laughs> um, no, so I bought a condo, and you guys live in a condo. I've been to your condo. It's awesome. It's a fabulous space. The whole building is super cool, but I don't actually like condo investing for me personally. I have lost some money in condo investing just because of the HOA dues. Which is my top reason why I don't like, which is my top reason why I don't like condo investing. Gotcha. I love real estate investing. <laughs> um, but what makes me an expert is I've been investing since God was a boy. Uh, <laughs> I am, 
we were joking once on the Bigger Pockets podcast, and I somebody said, "Oh, Mindy's twenty one. I'm not twenty one. I'm not even close to twenty one. I'm not even twenty one twice over." So we'll just go. With that. Uh, but I started investing in 1998. So. I've been doing this a while. I've got a lot of experience in different markets and different factors of the market, different scenarios. Like I invested in a hot market. I invested in a really crappy market a few years ago. I've been doing it a while. That's why I'm an expert. Jeez, <laughs> we're not. We're close to the same age, and I, w- I think I was still living with my mom and dad in 1998. So <laughs> you had your shit together. <laughs> so wh- no, I was cheap. I didn't want to pay rent anymore. <laughs> right. What kind of investments have you made? So my main method of investing is a live-in flip where I buy a house that's very ugly. I move into it with all of my stuff and I rehab the property and make it look beautiful. I live in it for at least two years. Then when I sell the property, I pay zero capital gains because it is my primary residence. And I find a new property that's very ugly to move into and lather, rinse, repeat. So that our audience understands, uh, Mindy is married to Mr. 1500 and you have three kids? We have two kids. Two kids. So it's not like moving is super easy, squeezy, and she's just doing it by herself. She's got two girls who she's moving around. (laughs) And for a while I was borderline hoarder. So yeah. (laughs) Um, Nature versus nurture. It is totally both. Like my, my parents are wonderful people. They are not hoarders, like they couldn't be on TV, but they definitely have too much stuff. (laughs) So, And I have always followed suit. I'm trying really hard to get rid of it now. So yeah, I was moving a lot of stuff around. But the main time that I was doing this investing, I did not have children. uh, The bulk of the time that I was doing this. It is definitely easier without kids. Sure, no doubt. So you mentioned that there are all these different categories and sub-niches within the different categories of investing. How... Did you find out what worked for you? First, it just started with almost luck. I bought a condo because I was too cheap to continue paying rent, throwing my money away on rent. I bought a condo in Carroll Stream, Illinois for $49,000 because I was a big spender. Like I said, this was 1998. (laughs) And while I was living there, it was really ugly. I wanted to have different colored walls. I wanted to have, instead of the linoleum floor, I wanted to have nice tile floor. So my dad came over and installed tile floor for me. I got a new refrigerator. I painted all the walls. And when I sold it, we got married. And then I sold the condo. It sold for $75,000. Nice. And I thought, wow, that's $25,000. That's more money than I make in a year at the time. So that's really awesome. I want to do this again. We moved into my husband's grandmother's house and purchased that from her estate. And like at the beginning of an upswing. So we got in there. It was all pink. His grandmother loved the color. (laughs) Pink carpets, pink walls, (laughs) pink furniture, pink everything. And we upgraded it. We put in like cream colored carpeting. We painted the walls and a lot of landscaping. And we sold that for, I think, $100,000 more than we bought it for. Maybe one hundred and five. dollars And it just kind of snowballed from there. And the IRS, around the same time, the IRS made this new rule. If you live in a property for two of the last five years and you own it for two of the last five years, you can sell it and pay no capital gains taxes on the proceeds up to $500,000 if you're a married couple and up to $250,000 if you're single. So we took that $105,000 and just put it right in our pocket. Actually, we put it into the next house, but right. we paid no taxes on that. Nice. Wow. Is, is that rule still in effect today? It sure is. Oh, nice. I right. have used it. You can only do it once every two years, obviously, but it's an excellent rule if you can live through the construction. Right. It does have to be your primary residence. It's got a five-year timeline, so you can move into it and do your rehab for two years and then rent it out for three years and then sell it. Or rent it out for three years, then move in and live there for two years and sell it. So it sounds like you're handy then, or do you hire people to help fix up your home? So I'm handy by necessity and more my husband than me, but we have had some of the worst luck finding contractors. We can pick out of a crowd. You've got a crowd of 100 awesome people and one crappy contractor. We'll (laughs) zero in on that guy. Um, 
<laughs> so we do hire people to build. Twice we have popped the top. We've added a second story to a house that we bought, and we hire somebody to build the actual structure. Yeah. We hire out the drywall and the roofing because those are awful jobs. And we do basically all the finish work. I do all the painting. He does the tile. I install the wood floors. He does the plumbing and electrical. In many instances, if you are living in many cities, if you're living in the property, you can perform all the work. There are some cities that require you to hire licensed contractors, but they allow homeowners to work on their property themselves. So if you are handy and you plan on living in the property, you know, check your city statutes, but you can save a lot of money by doing the work yourself legally if it's your primary residence. Gotcha. So David, can you do all of that work for us? Because <laughs> I can. <laughs> well, one of, the, one of the nice things about living in a home especially is that you have the space to have the tools and things like that. Living in a condo, we live in a thousand square foot condo and it's it's very difficult to have those kinds of tools to be able to do that kind of renovation. So that's true. It may, yeah, my garage is filled. Right. It may be that we do something like that with a uh, rented space, a small rented space where we can keep the tools and things like that that we would need or keep the other stuff that would normally be in the spare bedroom <laughs> where we can then have the tools in the spare bedroom. But. So you could just borrow mine. I've got every tool you need. <laughs> okay, everybody contact Mindy Jensen. <laughs> okay, it sounds like this method worked for you. What is a good way for someone to figure out what real estate investing strategy might work best for them? Is there a rule of thumb or any guidelines? Well, it depends on how hands-on you want to be. There's obviously I'm very hands-on because I'm doing the work myself. I'm living through the construction. But you don't have to. You can do completely passive investing where it's called turnkey investing, where you connect with a company that provides turnkey properties. You literally have to do nothing. They show you, hey, here's this property we have, and it's got tenants in it, and here's the money that you're going to make every month, and this is the price it is. And you give them, let's say it's $100,000. You give them $100,000, and now they start sending you rent checks every month. Oh, so you're, what, what you're is basically that trading your investment for cash flow. Yeah, exactly. You are you're creating a passive source of income through. It's called turnkey investing, and okay. there's it works best in places like the Midwest, Kansas City, or Memphis, or Cleveland, where housing prices are low, but rents are still high compared to the price that you are paying for the house. Mm-hmm. There's a Lots of rules of thumb in real estate investing. One of the rules of thumb is called the 1% rule, where if you can get 1% of the purchase price in rent per month, that meets the 1% rule. That's a good indicator that that's probably going to make you money. So you buy a property for $100,000, you rent it for $1,000 a month. That is your 1% rule. There are people in places like Milwaukee that are making 2% where they buy it for $50,000 and they rent it out for $1,000 a month. Gotcha. But then you're living in Milwaukee. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Laverne and Shirley were from Milwaukee. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually, I lived in Madison, Wisconsin. And it's funny that I say Milwaukee. I'm actually drinking, we're drinking beer today on this recording. And I'm drinking a chocolate peanut butter porter from Horny Goat Brewing Company out of Milwaukee. Um, <laughs> And I used to live in Madison. I actually really love Wisconsin. (laughs) So if somebody wanted to get into property flipping, that's pretty much what you do, right? But just on a a long-term basis? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a little bit longer-term basis rather than the fix and flip short-term that a lot of people are doing these days. Right. You can still, you can make money doing that. But as our market gets tighter, it's harder to make money that way. Gotcha. And you and Carl started to to branch outside of Colorado, haven't you? Or at least you've looked at properties outside of Colorado? We have not jumped into other properties, other states yet. We're looking at Cheyenne, Wyoming, which has an interesting mix of young professionals who are fairly transient. They come in, there's an oil processing plant or something related to the oil industry in Cheyenne that has six-month employment stretches. So guys will come in and work there for six months and then transfer someplace else. So they don't want to buy a house there, but they still need someplace to live. There's also a traveling nurses program 
and they will need a place to stay for three months. Again, they don't want to buy a property there, but they still need a place to sleep. There's a military base in Cheyenne. It's the capital of the state. So it's it's really bustling. And when I have more time, I will go and check it out. Gotcha. So let me ask you, so Mindy, you, you mentioned Cheyenne, you mentioned Madison, I'm not sorry, Madison, um, Milwaukee. What is your take on the difference between what a lot of people consider as the very desirable cities to live in, San Francisco, LA, New York, I think Denver, especially in the city is one of those versus some of these other maybe second, third, fourth tier cities that may have a somewhat nice lifestyle, but they're not the premier cities. What do you think as far as investing in those kind of cities? If someone is listening to this and they're living in San Francisco, what should they be considering? Buy an expensive cardboard box. <laughs> <laughs> so San Francisco is a desirable place to live, but it's so unaffordable that, I mean, you can't even afford to buy a primary residence. One of the attractions to investing outside of these more expensive cities is that you can get in for $30,000, $40,000, $50,000. You can buy an entire house for $50,000, three bedrooms and one and a half bathrooms with a roof and like not meth. And <laughs> there's some real attractions to buying these properties. But, you know, people would rather rent than own in some of these cities because maybe the job market isn't as strong as it could be, or maybe growth is trending downward. One of the cities that really gets a lot of punches thrown at it is Detroit. But right. if you look in the heyday of Detroit, they had 1.6 million residents and now they have 800,000 residents. So they have all that housing that nobody even needs. There's not a big demand for housing because it's so cheap. Or I mean, it's so cheap because there's not a big demand. I'm sorry, I said that backwards. You know what? Let's look at weather. Have you ever been to Detroit in January? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's not as nice as Denver in January. Right. Right. So if you're thinking about investing in property in one of these cities, you may want to consider the advantages to being able to buy in at a much lower price because of your upside potential. But at the same time, you have to weigh all of these other considerations such as the economy, the weather, the availability of, of services, things that people like. You know, that's another really great point, the availability of services. Detroit, again, gets another kick in the teeth, but it takes like an hour and a half for the police to respond to a 911 call. Uh, wow. Why would I live there when I can live in Chicago where they still have an active police force or they still have the firefighters will come before your house is burned to the ground? <laughs> um, and, you know, Detroit has an influx of money problem. They're not having any influx of money. They're, you know, they, they can't collect taxes. You can buy a house in Detroit for a dollar. And as soon as you sign your name on the deed, they start foreclosure proceedings because they are looking for the back taxes on the property. Wow. Oh, so wow. It's, it's a difficult market to invest in, but there are other markets like Cleveland, Ohio. You can find a multifamily property, that's a, a property that has more than one unit in it. So like a duplex has two units or, you know, a tenplex. You can find those for under $100,000 on a duplex, under $250,000, $300,000 on a, a decent tenplex, where you look at the Denver market and it's, you know, you can't touch anything for under $400,000. Right. And multifamilies are going for multi-million dollars and the rents don't keep up with it. You know, we were just in Cleveland at a speaking event, and we were impressed at how metropolitan the city was. There was right. a lot going on there. There was a lot. There were a lot of young professionals working there uh, or living there, and uh, they had a very good LGBT scene. Right. So we often talk about in some of our articles about the need to consider second and third tier cities to advance your careers, to grow your income, to grow your net worth, and it kind of sounds like Mindy's reinforcing that. Right. And, and on our podcast with Sonara Four. Mm -hmm. Right. So now I was going to see if I can remember her name. Sonara is 22 years old, 21 years old, and just graduated from college and already owns her own home because of the affordability of homes there. So she purchased a home while she was working and in school and 
is going to be one of those people who's going to have her first home paid off probably before she's 30 years old because she's purchased it at such a low price. She's like the 2017 Mindy Jensen. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of some of these cities are starting to come back. Uh, a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, Buffalo, New York was not a destination. It was kind of run down. They get the most snow out of like any place in the world or something like that. Maybe any place in America because they've got the lake effect snow from what is that? Lake Erie? Yeah, I think that's Lake Erie or no, I don't know my lakes. Yeah, <laughs> I've got a map right here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all the the lake effect snow from Lake Erie gives them like six feet of snow every winter. So that right there, weather, nobody wants to live in six feet of snow every winter. If you have an opportunity, and that's not like Denver snow. Here's a little known fact. Denver snow melts like every other day. (laughs) In these East Coast towns, it snows in October and then it starts melting in May. So, you know, you don't see the sun for six weeks, six months, and you start to get seasonal affective disorder like you in Colorado it's sunny all the time today is like the first cloudy day in six months but that has a real effect on people but now Buffalo is they're having a rise in population growth there are companies that are coming back the downtown is being revitalized and a lot of it I think is in part due to all these people who can't afford San Francisco anymore San Francisco, I have a friend who was a programmer out there. His rent, he was on a month-to-month lease, and every month his rent went up because they oh, – wow. yeah. and every when he got sick of it or when he got kicked out of an apartment, he'd go find another one, and he'd open – he'd walk in the door, and there's 90 other people desperately fighting to pay $4,000 for this you know, 300 square feet of space with a shared bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's – I don't see how they can sustain this – price rising but i'm not out there so yeah. maybe i can't now facebook is creating their own village so that they can <laughs> build, build affordable housing for their employees <laughs> right. but it's still going to be like out of most people's price range right. <laughs> yeah i mean your housing goes your housing prices are like 60 percent of your income that's not cool no no and what was that report i said today 38 percent of americans can't spend, afford their home right because it costs more than 30 percent of their, their income on housing which is basically the level at which the government's says that you're you're living beyond your means or your your home is uh it causes you to not be able to afford other things in life right and when the u.s government tells you that you're living beyond your means that's that's hypocrisy (laughs) 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 thank you china (laughs) and japan we want to thank mass mutual for their support of the queer money podcast and for the lgbt community mass mutual supports us please support mass mutual so Mindy, in some of these cities, like, well, Denver was definitely one of those, but you mentioned Cleveland, and we've seen this happen in other cities where gentrification is taking place. Oftentimes, it's the neighborhoods that have kind of gotten over the hump that are now the desirable neighborhoods. There are more gentrification has happened in those neighborhoods. Does that mean that they are maybe less of an opportunity when it comes to investing in those neighborhoods versus ones where it may may not be a dangerous place but it's certainly not the most the prettiest neighborhood. <laughs> the you know when you can force appreciation that's when you're going you have the opportunity to make the most money. But you know with rewards comes risk. So right. if you are and if you do some research you can watch the path of progress. You know you've got this really hot neighborhood Let's say Wash Park in Denver. You've got a really hot neighborhood, but then just to the north of this, and of course this was several decades ago because now everything is hot in Denver, but just to the north of it, maybe that's an area that's kind of sketchy or not so awesome. So if you buy just to the north of the the hot neighborhood or just to the east, depending on where the path of progress is going, you have a lot more potential to make money because you are investing in an ugly neighborhood. Well, make it pretty. Curb appeal is a lot. If somebody w- drives up to your house and they're like, oh, this is awful. I'm not even getting out of the car. <laughs> you just lost a renter or a buyer. Or, But if you make the property look pretty, they don't necessarily see all the rest of the ugliness in the neighborhood. And if you make the inside of the property really hip and cool, then it's not such a big deal that the neighbor you know, has dirt for a front yard. Right. So is that how you would force appreciation is to sort of just fix up 
those homes are just outside of the currently hip area? Yes, just outside of, you know, but in the, still in the path of progress is one of your best bets for making a lot of money in like a fix and flip. Mm -hmm. You want to have the ugliest house on the street. You yeah. don't want to buy the best house because there's really nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. Right. That makes sense. That's good to know. And, and more often than not, if you're looking at buying that best house on the street, then you're going to be paying top dollar in the neighborhood. And then there is the potential for you to to lose something because if you're the most expensive house in the neighborhood, if the others don't gentrify, if the other ones don't start to make improvements, then you're kind of stuck or you could be in a neighborhood where you just kind of property value goes down. Well, and think about this. Let's say you are in a neighborhood that is all the houses are selling for $100,000, except this one house is selling for $200,000. And it's a $200,000 house. It's a nice house. It's bigger than the rest. People who are looking for $200,000 houses aren't shopping in the $100,000 neighborhood. Right. So your house is going to, if you suddenly have to get out of this really nice house, it's going to sit on the market. For a long time, you're going to have to reduce the price. You're not going to make as much money. When you try to get rid of it, it's not going to be as easy to get rid of because right. it doesn't fit in with the neighborhood. But if you know you bought the ugliest house in a really nice neighborhood and now you fix it up, now it's the same as everybody else. Right. If you are an urban pioneer, you may have to wait a little bit to realize your gains. But if you're buying in the path of progress, you're not going to have to wait forever. Being an urban pioneer sounds pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so you need to decide whether or not you want your home to be your, your showpiece or if you want to be an investment property. And if you look for it as an investment property, it's better to look for the ugliest house on the street that you can invest and make it at least adequate or in line with the houses on the street. Correct. Right. I would the, absolutely recommend that. Those have the largest upside potential. Right. Is there a benchmark for how much money you should invest in the ugliest house on the street? There's not really a benchmark. You want to make sure you're going to make money. So there's a saying, you make your money when you buy. Because if you buy the house at $50,000 and it's going to sell after repair value is around $100,000, it doesn't matter if you put in a gold, a solid gold toilet and solid gold countertops with diamond studs in them, it's only going to be worth $100,000 because that's what everything else is selling for. Right. So if you buy it at $80,000 thinking, oh, I'll just put in all this money and it'll be worth so much more, it doesn't matter what you – it matters, but it doesn't matter what you put into it. The after repair value is based on other homes that are sold recently in the area. So if you're buying it for fifty thousand and the others are selling for a hundred thousand, you know that you cannot put anywhere near fifty thousand dollars into it. You've got to be right. thinking: is can twenty thousand dollars, twenty five thousand dollars, be enough money to put into this house to make it appealing, as appealing as other homes in the neighborhood? Exactly. And so then, you need to you need to do your research before you make an offer on the house. You can't make an offer for fifty thousand and then they accept it. You do your research. You discover that it's going to cost you fifty thousand to make the property look nice. You can't go back and say, oh, "Okay, would you just take thirty-five? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> they don't renegotiate like that, right. you know. And not every home is a good deal. Not every home is a good investment. Right. So you have to do a little bit of research up front before you just jump into home ownership with two feet. Right. And what that kind of research that you're talking about? Where do you where do you go to find that sort of information out? So that information is going to be local. That's going to be from your real estate agent. You're going to ask them, what are other homes in the area selling for and in what condition are they selling? If every single home is a 1980s special, then there's upside for you to make money on it. If every single home is selling at the same price that your house is selling, but it's already fixed up, there's not a lot of upside to make money on that property. That's one of the problems I'm facing right now in my market is that these fixer-upper houses are selling for so much more money than I feel that they're worth. I don't feel like there's a lot of value that I can add to the properties right now because I, as an investor, am competing with owner-occupants who want to live in it and just fix it up as they go because it's the only thing they can find. Yeah. So you're talking about talking with a real estate agent to get the sold comps in the area 
Yes. Um, do you also uh, have access to MLS yourself or do you do the, use access that through um, your real estate agent? So I actually have MLS access because I'm a real estate agent. Only real estate agents have access to the MLS. Okay. So you can go it alone. If you're new to investing, I really recommend that you get a real estate agent to help you because it's a huge purchase and you can lose a lot of money if you don't do it right. Zillow is a good starting point. Redfin is a good starting point for sold homes. They get information from the MLS and they can tell you what a home sold for. But the Zillow Zestimate can be inaccurate if I wouldn't rely solely on that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's volatile. Right. As we've learned. (laughs) So I have a self-serving question. Say there's this really nice couple who lives in a condo that has a lot of potential, but the people that live in the condo building with them have no ambition and the nice couple would like to move out and buy a home, a single family home. (laughs) But because of the appreciation in Colorado, they're still poor no matter what home they want to buy. What strategy would you recommend to that really nice couple? (laughs) Well, I'd recommend that both of them get a job. (laughs) Um, Denver's a really tough market right now. I can't sugarcoat that and be like, oh, yeah, you should totally buy a property. There are definitely deals to be found, but you really have to look for them. And they're going to be ugly houses that you're buying. If you're in a hot market like this, I would recommend connecting with a real estate agent so you can start getting listings sent to you just so you can even learn the market. You know, oh, that house is really cute. How much is it listed for? $300,000. Are they kidding? So you know, you start to get immune to the sticker shock. You start to learn what houses are going for. So you can recognize a good deal. This one's only $250. Ooh, I wonder what's wrong with it. You know, oh, nothing's wrong with it. They just want to get out of it. Great. Let's make an offer. There are deals to be had, but you really have to, to search high and low for them right. in our hot market. But what your friends, hypothetical, this hypothetical couple could do is walk around the neighborhoods that you want to live in and notice the house. Hey, that house is kind of cute. It looks a little rundown. Let me write down the address. You write down the address. You send them a letter. Hey, I noticed your house. If you're ever thinking about selling, I'd like to buy. You don't need a real estate agent to represent you in a real estate transaction. Although again, if you are new to this, I highly recommend getting the advice of a real estate agent or at the very least a real estate attorney who can make sure that you're not writing up your contracts incorrectly, make sure you're getting the house that you're actually buying or that you actually want to buy. You know, you make a mistake on the legal description and you've bought a house six blocks away or something. You definitely want somebody who's watching your back who knows more than you do when you're first starting out. We'll walk around as a family. We walk around the neighborhood and I just write down addresses. I go and look them up in the public records to see like if they just sold last week, they're probably not going to sell to me. But if they've been around for a while, maybe they're they're sick of it. Maybe they want to move out. Maybe it's too expensive for them. Maybe, you know, they're really old and thinking about going into a retirement community. You know, whatever the case may be, I just write them a note. It's called a yellow letter because you're supposed to write handwrite it on yellow paper and make it look all personal. I type it up because I have horrible handwriting. <laughs> and it just says, hey, I'm a real estate investor. I was walking around the neighborhood. I saw your house. I think it's great. I'd love to buy it. If you're ever considering selling it, send me a note. I give them every single way to contact me, email, phone, address. And I leave it at that. I've had an enormous response from a lot of people that I've sent these letters to because I make them very targeted. Um, I'm not just blasting it out to everybody. Hey, I want to buy your house. Call me. And it's a nice letter. It's not a mean letter. I got one that was sent to me from another real estate investor who was obviously blasting everybody. It's like, uh, I haven't been able to get in touch with you. So you need to call me. I want to buy your house. (laughs) No, you're being really mean to me and it's not a dumpy house. I've been I've been fixing it up for the last four years. This actually got nice now. If I do say so myself. Right. <laughs> if I do say so myself. 
Beautiful. So I'd like to transition to some, uh, in our Queer Money Facebook group, that's private, plug, 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 if you want to be a member. We had uh, the inspiration for this podcast uh, started, came out of a discussion in that group. And we had some people ask some questions that are over mine and David's head. And we thought you might be the perfect person to answer them. I am. So <laughs> Ryan asks, do you feel the real estate market is overpriced? He's not in Colorado. So I'm wondering if he's, I'm assuming he's speaking nationally. You know what? Honestly, I really do. And what I feel, this sounds snotty and I don't mean it to sound snotty, but what I feel doesn't matter. It's what everybody else will pay for it. Real estate is like, you don't put a price on it. The market puts a price on it and somebody will pay $200,000 for that one bedroom shack. Then it's worth $200,000. So while I don't feel that the properties are worth what people are paying for them, I am definitely in the minority right now. Gotcha. Yeah, I have noticed that the Case-Shiller Index, they keep saying that there are bubbly pockets around the country. And I just heard the Chase Chief Investment Officer underscore that. He believes it's also bubbly in certain pockets around the country. So probably areas like Denver, San Francisco, LA, New York, uh, maybe some other second-tier cities are bubbly. But it, it, it does seem like it seems to be getting progressively more bubbly. So that would, should be something for people to watch out for. What benchmarks do you use to notice when the market starts becoming unbubbly? <laughs> when houses start sitting on the market for a longer time, right now in my city, a house will come on the market and it is almost instantly under contract. It sells for over asking price within two or three weeks of being listed. It's already closed. In talking to other agents, the buyers are foregoing inspections. And if it doesn't appraise out, they'll bring money to closing. And right now, our market is so shallow. Like I think there's a month of inventory and a balanced market is six months of inventory. So we just really have, there's no houses for sale. Everything's already under contract. So then the follow-up question to that is, when do you think the string of upticks will correct? Do you have any, you have a crystal ball over there? Oh, if I could, if I could, see the future i would be (laughs) either buying like crazy now knowing that it's going to just continue to go up or i would start holding on to things start you know gathering up my cash for when it falls down like i said we walk around our neighborhood a lot and i remember a lot of prices oh look that house sold for two hundred thousand six months ago and now it's on the market again for 250 300 and they didn't do anything to it it's on the market for 150,000. Three years ago, we saw it and they've done, you know, a little bit of work and now it's 400,000. And I really wish I would have bought back then. Yeah. So I think probably the question behind these questions is do you foresee, in your opinion, another 2008 housing crisis around the corner? So, in my opinion, I don't see that happening. I would not wish that on anybody with the whole upside down mortgage thing. And a lot of people lost their houses and have foreclosures on their records now because of that. However, as an investor, I would love to see that again because I can't afford anything right now. Right. I don't see that happening because that was brought on by a series of bad events that have since been sort of remedied. That was predicated on ninja loans, no income, no job applicants. I'm sorry, if you don't have any income, you don't have a job, you can't afford a $600,000 house. And 0% down is a bad idea. If you don't have the money for a down payment, you're probably not going to do very well, you know, when something pops up, when an expense pops up. So now that they have tightened the lending restrictions or the lending criteria have tightened up since that with the uh, the mortgage reform or the lending reform. I don't see that happening again anytime soon. Well, that I'd like to hear. Yeah. Do you think that maybe the uptick in interest rates, though, may have a negative effect on home prices? So I think it'll help cool home prices or at least slow their growth. But we are in a period of ridiculously low interest rates. My first property in 1998, I got a 7% interest rate. And I thought that I had negotiated some smoking hot deal. (laughs) And, you know, now I've never paid more than 7% ever. But in the early 80s, the interest rate was 
15%, 17%, you couldn't lock in a rate and the interest rate would go up like two points in a day. My parents owned a house in Oregon for 30 years because the interest rates changed right before closing and the borrower couldn't afford the loan anymore. So they were stuck with this house when we moved. I don't see the interest rate increase as a bad thing. I mean, 2%, 3%, 4%, that's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. But if you've got a low rate, don't pay it off fast. Pay the minimum because that's like free money. You can you can invest your money elsewhere rather than like paying off your house. You can invest your money elsewhere and get a better return. Exactly. Here, here. Yeah. So final question uh, from Ryan. He says, how long, and I think this is a really good question. How long would you recommend a new real estate investor wait after a first time home purchase before looking to either sell upgrade or hold rent out the space? So this all depends on your own personal financial situation. If you bought a house to live in, if you got an owner-occupied loan, they usually come with a one-year owner-occupancy requirement. So I definitely wouldn't start looking for another house to move into until that one year is up. After that, if you are just looking to buy another property can you afford both mortgage payments at the same time? Let's say you buy, you've got your own house and you've got a rental property that nobody's living in. You have to foot the bill for the mortgages on both properties or you are going to default and lose them. So definitely be able to afford the property before you buy it. Be able to afford the rent. Have a good cushion. A lot of banks will want to see a six-month cushion when you're buying a bigger property, which means you can afford the payments, the utilities, the mortgage, all of that for six months without renting it out. And that's a really good rule of thumb, another rule of thumb. I mean, you don't want to buy a property and then be scrambling or, you know, buy yourself some stress. Right. So if you are going to upgrade the property, again, the two-year rule is so beneficial. That's such a gift from the IRS and you never get gifts from the IRS. (laughs) That's for sure. (laughs) You know, here's, here's a tax-free way to make up to $500,000. And you know, you're not going to hit that $500,000 very frequently. I've never hit it. I've never even come close to hitting it, but it can be done. Why pay taxes? I mean, $500,000 taxes on $500,000 is like 50, 65, 15% on long-term capital gains. And it's your income on short-term capital gains. It's your regular income rate. Yeah, that would be a lot of money. Yeah. So, yeah. So there isn't really a recommended wait time. Just be prepared. And it is Mm -hmm. so much better to look back on a property and wish you would have bought it than have a property and say, oh, I wish I wouldn't have bought this. I can't afford it. I'm going to, you know, lose my shirt. Right. This just isn't worth it. Right. It, it so isn't. You said that the mortgage lenders look for a six-month cushion. I remember back in the 90s or whatever, I think Carlson Sheets told me that um, – <laughs> Told dating, you personally? Am I dating myself? Yeah. Um, suggested to, said to assume that for every 11 months that you have a renter, you'll have one month on average where you don't have a renter. Is that still a rule of thumb or truth? That is a rule of thumb. I think that works out to an 8% vacancy rate. And that's something that you want to factor in when you're running your numbers, when you're trying to see if it's a good property to make into a rental, is to make sure that you are accounting for all the expenses. The mortgage is X. Utilities, if you as the landlord are paying them, cost X. And you have to account for vacancy because sometimes you are going to have months that there isn't a tenant in there and therefore you're not collecting rent. And if you don't prepare for that, then you could really find yourself in a tight squeeze. If you are making, let's say, $100 a month in cash flow and your rent is $800 a month and here's a whole month that you're not collecting rent, you just went from $1,200 a year to $400 a year. And what happens if something breaks or you have to call a repairman? Right. You know, you have to replace something. I know somebody who bought a property. They lived in it for a little while. They moved out and rented it out. And in the year that they rented it out, the furnace broke and the hot water heater broke. Yeah. And they didn't have any cushion 
to pay for that. So as soon as the lease was up, they put the house on the market because they couldn't afford to keep the property anymore. And I thought, well, no, everything's new. Now you should totally keep it. <laughs> but if you had, I mean, the, the furnace is what, $5,000? The hot water heater is like $1,000? So, you know, having a nice little cushion, if you don't use it, it's just there. And if you use it, then you're not stressing out about finding ways to pay for it. Right. And again, that stress sucks. Yes, it does. It does suck. <laughs> so this is um, a great conversation. I will say as as deep as we went, I think it was very high level and that if you are new to investing in real estate or considering it, you need to do much more research than what you heard on this podcast, but hopefully you got some information to get you started. Right. Mindy Jensen, where can our listeners find more about you and what you do and find more information about real estate investing? So I work at a company called biggerpockets.com. It is a real estate investing mecca. We have a podcast that should be your number two podcast. That you guys, <laughs> of course, is number one. Thank you. But we have a weekly podcast where we interview a real estate investor who has made some mistakes and is now having some success. And they share their tips and tricks for how they have found success. Biggerpockets.com has a blog. We have a forum where if you have a specific question, you can jump in and ask and you'll get 10 responses from people who have done it a hundred times. We just crossed over our 800,000 member mark. Yay. Wow, nice. Oh, nice. That's so cool. we really do have a lot of investors on the site freely sharing their information, just like I freely shared here. Real estate is actually kind of competitive and in real life, people aren't as helpful they don't want to tell you about the deal that they just found in Wash Park for $100,000 because you're going to go steal it from them. Right. You know, you're you're not going to give them the proper information because you don't want them to succeed. And it it sounds so mean. But <laughs> it's money and people get really mean when it comes to money. I feel like I'm listening but, to an episode of Mean Girls. <laughs> <laughs> but on bigger pockets, if you ask an intelligent question, you're going to get a lot of responses and you know, oh, should I buy this house? Here are the numbers. Well, great. Here's why that makes a really great investment. Or here's why that doesn't make a really great investment. And it's a very sharing community and everybody there loves real estate. So if you are interested in real estate, you have a question about flipping or any uh, landlording, any of the other billion ways to invest in real estate, come on over and check us out. And sometimes Mindy is the host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, podcast, and she also has a specialty in doing YouTube videos for Bigger Pockets. So yeah. you can check out some of her great videos on YouTube. <laughs> and, well, I have been and told written. that I'm very gesturous on the YouTube videos. So if you see my hands fly it about. Doesn't Bigger Pockets have a series of books on real estate investing if you want to do some reading? Yes, we do. We have a series of books. We've got a book on flipping houses. We have a book on estimating rehab costs, which is very important because, you know, when you're doing a new tile floor, it's not just tile. It's also mortar to stick the tile to the floor. It's also grout. It's also sealer. It's also, you know, all the tools that you need involved in, you know, to put the, the flooring down. So there's a lot of rehab costs that you don't really think about. And we have a book that tells you all about them. That's written by Jay Scott. We have a book on investing in rental property, the book on managing rental properties. We have a tax book. So when you do have to pay taxes on your rental properties or your real estate investments, we can walk you through that. The book on investing in real estate with no and low money down, different ways to fund a real estate purchase using somebody else's money. We have a new book called Set for Life written by Scott Trench, which is a book on how to go from basically a zero net worth to being set for life grow your wealth through yes. real estate and frugality, increasing your income. And we have a new, oh, we have a new book coming out on Thursday called The Book on Finding and Funding Great Deals, because it is difficult to find a, a good deal right now in our tight market. Nice. That's all great. And I think somebody on this call is writing a book right now. Oh, yeah. How to Sell Your House. How to Sell Your House is coming out in October ish. I don't have a specific date yet. And the subtitle is still being bandied about, but something along the lines of everything your real estate agent should have told you, but may not have. Hmm. 
there are some real estate agents who have never sold a house before, so they don't know what they're doing. But there are a lot of real estate agents out there who have done so many deals that they may forget a step here or a step there. And if you've never sold a house before, or if you haven't sold a house in a while, there's a lot of things you need to know about. You could really leave a lot of money on the table if you're not informed. So that, that book is coming out around October. That's awesome. Around the end of October. And then in February, March-ish is how to buy a house. Again, things that your real estate agent may not tell you about or may not think that you care about, you know, the whole entire process, because it is so many steps. It is so much to think about and so much to know. Right. Yeah. Could be daunting. So that's great. So thank you so much for your time. We appreciate your expertise. And I, I felt like we just hung out at the bar and drank some beer <laughs> with you. Hey, that's what we were doing. Right. We are just chatting over a beer. Exactly. Uh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I hope to come back again. Absolutely. We oh, definitely have to have, have you back. Thank you so much, guys. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. That was a lot of information. We want to thank Mindy for giving us her time and sharing her knowledge with investing in real estate, as many of us are novices in the area, and it's something that we might want to consider if we want to prepare for retirement. As Mindy mentioned, you can find out a whole host of additional information about investing in real estate through all different resources that she and Bigger Pockets offer through their podcast, website, books, and other resources. So if you want more information, if this podcast sparked an interest in you, please visit Mindy and her colleagues at biggerpockets.com, where you can find all that information there. Lastly, we want to thank Mass Mutual for their sponsorship of the Queer Money Podcast. Mass Mutual is a supporter of the LGBT community and a supporter of the Queer Money Podcast. So they support us. Please support Mass Mutual. Okay. We just serviced you. Now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle newsletter at queer.money. Well, I'm not really gay. <laughs> <laughs> would help me if I had a personal chef made all me all the healthy meals for me. Right. So instead I'll have a Snickers tonight. <laughs> uh-huh. The other end, I like the butts, so. <laughs> yeah. uh- From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.